2: On March 15th, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signed SB 263, a bill designed to ensure that biological crime scene evidence is retained properly. The bill is a key step in revealing wrongful convictions and solving cold cases in the Hoosier state. The proper collection, preservation, and storage of physical evidence from a crime scene is imperative when it comes to prosecuting and defending criminal cases. The major advances in technology over the past decades, including the collection of trace amounts of DNA and forensic genealogy, have revolutionized the use of biological evidence in a way that allows investigators to solve cold cases and exonerate the innocent. Until now, Indiana was one of only 15 states without an evidence preservation law, and state evidence custodians, including law enforcement agencies, court clerks, and hospitals have faced a lack of guidance on how long to properly preserve biological evidence from collection through post-conviction. The new law will place the Hoosier State on par with neighboring states such as Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Illinois that already have a statutory automatic duty of preservation.
0: And now we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On March 29th, two
3: prisoners detained at the Yankton Community Work Center left their work-release job site in Yankton, South Dakota, and did not return. One prisoner was recaptured on March 30th, but as of May 1st, no information has been reported about the
1: whereabouts of the other prisoner. On April 16th, two detainees escaped from the Eastern State Hospital in Williamsburg, Virginia, by damaging an interior wall at the facility. One detainee was recaptured approximately 60 miles from the facility on April 17th and is being held at the Chesapeake City Jail. The other detainee was recaptured on Thursday, April 21st in Norfolk, Virginia, and is being held at Norfolk City Jail. Both detainees were mandated to the facility and have been charged with escape. On April 18th, a group of 60 immigrant
3: detainees launched a hunger strike at the Folkson Ice Processing Center in Georgia, According to an outside solidarity group, the ICE detainees came together to protest the indefinite detention they say they experience at the facility. On the third day of the strike, detainees in the neighboring unit joined the protest by staging a sit in, dragging their mattresses into the common areas, skipping count, and threatening to hunger strike. As a result of the protests, ICE has met with detainees to give them updates on their cases accelerated cases through the courts, deported some detainees who had been waiting indefinitely for deportation orders, and even released some detainees. In late 2021, Geo Group, the private prison company that operates the facility, signed a contract with Charlton County to expand its facility, tripling its bed count from 780 to 3018. For more information, follow at shutdownfipc.com. On Instagram.
1: On April 18th, three men escaped from the Muskingum County Jail in Ohio after overpowering a guard and stealing his keys. The trio escaped through a bridge that connects the jail to the county courthouse and stole a truck, which they later crashed in a high speed chase with local police. All three escapees were quickly recaptured. All three waived their right to a trial and pleaded guilty to charges of the escape. One detainee was also charged with breaking and entering as he entered several unoccupied structures while on the lam.
3: Two men escaped from the DeSoto County Jail in Mississippi on April 21st while working in the jail kitchen area. The pair escaped out a door while a delivery was being made. Both men were recaptured about 36 hours later. This was the first escape in 10 years at the facility.
1: At 10.16 p.m. on Friday, April 29th, several prisoners attempted to escape from the Whitley County Detention Center in Williamsburg, Kentucky. The Whitley County Sheriff's Department said there were no reported injuries after law enforcement agencies responded to the event. Allegedly, a prisoner staged a medical emergency by going off insulin, in which guards responding to the emergency were pushed into an interior cell while others attempted to escape. Two prisoners have reportedly been identified with the escape attempt and will be charged, it was also alleged that more were involved, including
0: several individuals outside the jail. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. A few weeks ago, we reached our 300th episode. In celebration of that milestone, we're airing some of our KiteLine crew's favorite clips from our archive of hundreds of episodes. In this clip from episode 119, Talila Lewis describes the challenges of being deaf in prison.
4: So most folks are like, oh, my gosh, deaf people aren't incarcerated. And I'm like, absolutely, they are. In fact, disproportionately so in the same way that disabled folks are disproportionately, and many of the deaf folks are deaf and disabled, are disproportionately incarcerated because the carceral system, again, wasn't set up to work with or support folks who are deaf and disabled. So we find lots of folks who are literally snatched from the streets for using sign language, uh, in particular folks who are deaf and black. Deaf-blind, deaf-disabled um, folks, Indigenous folks who are deaf, um, who obviously are living at the intersections of um, kind of all of the quote-unquote at-risk factors by you know, you know for running into trouble with the law. Yeah. So we created this database, and the goal obviously is not just to um, find our folks, but to provide support for them, their loved ones, to create an outlet to the outside world, and so. The other large component of this that must be addressed is that um, deaf folks, once they enter the carceral system, and by carceral system, I'm talking about jails and prisons, um, have absolutely no access to anyone, Um, no video phones, no interpreters, no access to family members, no mental or medical support. Um, And so that's been a large issue. So for about seven years, I've been working um, Trying to get the Department of Justice and or the Federal Communications Commission to mandate that video phones, caption telephones, uh, auxiliary aids that would allow for hard-of-hearing folks to be able to hear uh, with their residual hearing on phones, to mandate that all prisons across the nation, all jails, quote-unquote detention facilities, et cetera, install video phones, right? Right now, I mean, gosh, less than 20 prisons across the nation have video phones? And so deaf folks are literally losing their minds as a result of communication deprivation. So earlier we were listening to um, formerly incarcerated folks talk about uh, food deprivation, light deprivation, and the, the psychological and physical and mental toll that that takes. But um, understand that communication deprivation, I call it um, virtual solitary confinement. Um, so deaf folks who are even in the general population are you know, having to figure out ways to communicate with themselves, their other selves, right? Because um, that's what happens when you deprive people of, of communication in these sorts of um, perpetual um, and violent ways. Um, so it's just another form of torture by the carceral system, right? Like, So we think about, as hearing privileged people, we think often about um, some of the other forms of deprivation and violence that are drawn against the bodies of folks who are affected by the carceral system, family members, and there are, there are these other ways that the carceral system affects folks who have different disabilities um, that must be, must be named and addressed.
0: We'll have a link to the full episode on our website. And now, we return to Renford Ferrier, a Canadian prisoner who we heard from last week. Last time, we heard the beginning of his story. This week, he finishes up by talking to us more about his struggles to get released. Farrier was given a life sentence for killing a man and believed he'd be out on parole after 10 years. Now it's been 30 years and Farrier is still inside. Something in common between this conversation and the one we heard with TL is misconceptions about the experience of others. Farrier talks about the false perceptions of the Canadian prison system. Namely, that people think that Canadian prisons are somehow nicer and less racist than in the U.S. He walks us through how he initially understood his sentence to be 10 years. But in practice, each time he comes up for parole, he's denied. The Life 10 sentence is misleading, since many prisoners don't get paroled after 10 years given that in order to do so, you need to basically have a spotless record inside. To make matters worse, when they actually are paroled, it's nearly impossible to stay out. The parole system is so controlling that parolees are often accused of parole breaches, landing them back inside while they await a parole board's decision. Ferrier, as a black prisoner, feels like he's been unfairly denied parole repeatedly and talks to us about his feelings leading up to his next parole hearing, which is at the end of this year. Here he is.
5: You know, thinking that you'll be out in 10 years and then another 10 years and then another 10 years. Could you just kind of walk us through that experience? You know, what, what was it like and what has it been like to realize that, you know, the life 10, that the life is really a part of that as well?
6: So I wasn't aware of the life being a part of that until actually my first parole here. Right. So when I went for my first parole hearing and the first question that was put to me is, why didn't I come at seven to seek day parole? And I was like, what are you talking about? And it says, weren't you aware that you could come at seven and ask for day parole? I'm like, I didn't know nothing about that. I just got 10 years of coming for parole. You know what I mean? My family was there. I had representation there. And it was basically, hey, I'd done my 10 years. I got a life outside waiting for me, let's go. You know what I mean? Their whole thing was my behavior inside the walls. While it wasn't violent, it wasn't one that was acceptable for them, right? Because I never accepted being, let's say, an inmate. I was still a man. I wasn't gonna be told what to do if it was against my personal rights or my personal beliefs. I wasn't going to agree with something if I didn't feel that was right. I wasn't going to submit. I didn't know how to submit. That's not how I was raised. And part of your, I guess, your rehabilitation, so to speak, is to submit. I don't understand that. Right? So when I went at 10 years and their whole thing was, well, hey, you haven't been following all the rules. And I'm like, well, I'm in a prison. The rules vary day to day and moment to moment, right? I've served my 10 years. I'm not a violent individual. I wasn't violent before this act, and I haven't been violent after this act. Well, you've been involved in a lot of prison disturbances. And well, that's prison. Like if things are happening, like you gotta be part of that thing or you get removed from the prison. Prison culture isn't society culture. It's a whole different culture. And as a young 21-year-old being entered into Canada's most notorious prison, maximum security prison at the time, I had to grow up quick, fast, and learn what prison was. Right? And I didn't think my prison subculture would have been a thing that determined my release. For For my thinking, dude, just don't be in anything violent. Don't hurt nobody. Don't do no stupid stuff. You're good wrong. And one of the things that take place in Canadian prisons, I don't know if it happens in American prisons, but they have these things that's called reliable information and sources believe reliable. Like an inmate can come and say things that you are doing, things that you are involved in, and those things get put in your file and documented without actual proof of it. Like let's say an inmate comes and says, hey, uh, Renford is involved in dealing in illegal activity. So now on your file, it'll say inmate was investigated for dealing in whatever, whatever, whatever. And that's the end of it. If they catch you now, it says inmate was involved in dealing in this, 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 and was found to have this, this, and this. Okay? Conclusion being, we did this. If nothing is found, it still says inmate was investigated for this, 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 and this, and this. That's all. So now if somebody reading that just reads you under investigation, they don't read that the conclusion was, we found nothing. Because then that's to your favor. So the file is left as he was investigated. Right? So after the first 10 year, when my family came and went through that first parole hearing, like, we were all devastated because none of us realized, whoa, wait a minute, he ain't getting out? I thought after 10 years he would get out. Okay? So when they denied me at this one, so the process, how it works, once you're denied for the first time, you are you can go up again every two years. So in two years, I would be eligible to go again. So in two years, I went again. Right? So then when I went again in two years, they denied me again. And was for the same type of stuff involved in the prison subculture. And trying to explain... To somebody, the prison subculture that doesn't know this prison subculture is having a, trying to have a compromising conversation with an uncompromising person. It goes nowhere. So after I was denied that hearing, I was detected. I was like, just, I didn't go again for like eight years. I didn't want to go through the process of putting my family through the continually being rejected. So I just didn't go anymore. And I didn't go for eight years. And then the parole board sent me a letter ordering me to come to a hearing. So I figured if you're ordering me to come to a hearing, that must mean you have decided to let me out. Because you're ordering me to come. And I went and they denied me again. And like I tell you, I wasn't involved in any violence. I'm not doing anything violent. This is not why I'm being refused. And I have a life out there. I got family. I got, I got, I got kids. I have opportunity waiting for me.
5: Right. You're being punished for, you're being punished for not submitting yourself to their authority. So that gets us through kind of the first 20 or so years, which is is really just kind of astounding to think about that amount of time. Um, I know you have an upcoming parole hearing. Talk us through a little bit this upcoming hearing and what your approach is and just how you're feeling.
6: So my upcoming hearing, I'm still kind of worried because I'm going to tell you why I'm worried. There's two aspects to this, you know, well, a few, few layers. Back in the early 90s, and I hadn't thought about much about it until recently, as as I'm starting to really see the years pass by and really starting to look at stuff. Back in the 90s, remember I told you I was in Canada's most notorious prison when I first came here. It's called Kingston Penitentiary, which is Canada's most notorious maximum security prison. Officers murdered a black inmate. You understand? I'm not going to say his name like I told you you wouldn't say names, right? Five white officers murdered a black inmate, and I was to testify on behalf of the family who was awarded money for a wrongful debt suit. The guards were never charged with any criminal activity, never sentenced to none. They actually, they came back to work, you know what I mean? And there are times now where I wonder if that's part of what's going on with me, why I'm still stuck here. While Because I look and I see offenders doing the same kind of things that I'm doing. With the same kind, I've seen dudes come here with the same life 10, 15, and they're outside now. And they started their life sentence 10 years after I've already been in, right? And we're doing the same kind of behavior. So as for this new hearing that's coming up, you know and I mean, there's a lot that's going through my head, right? Because it's 30 years, and if I'm refused again, that's a hard pill to swallow. But the thing is now, like I was telling you one of the reasons why I feel like I'm still here, but that's not just, that's not the only thing. So I used to hear it, but I never used to understand it. You know, a person can tell you you are a certain way and drill that into you. And you start to believe it that that's how I am, you know what I mean, whether you're acting out that way or not, but you 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 believe you are the way they're telling you you are, and the system here made me believe that I was a bad person and I was a violent guy and a a bad person. I actually like they created something, and I went along with it. You know what I mean, my other fellow inmates. You have people that when they hear about me, they automatically, oh, this guy's a dangerous dude. And if you check out in fact, I ain't done much of nothing here other than do the time, right? But for the few little incidents that I've been in, they've created me to be this this animal. And like I said, I like I didn't know brainwash was a real thing, but I was brainwashed into believing I was like that. And in fact I wasn't. And it wasn't until like recently where I started to realize that I ain't nothing like that, you know what I mean? So now when I look back at it, I think like, what kind of system is this that would brainwash me into thinking like that and just leave me to believe that? So now that I have a another hearing coming up, it's in December. You know, what I mean, I have I have a lot of apprehension and a lot of anxiety about that because. First and foremost, in all my parole hearings I've been to, I've been to about five of them. There's nobody on that parole board that looked like me, come from anywhere that I come from, or understand anything about where I come from. It's all white middle class, some upper middle class people that don't know the lived black experience. It's like it's no, it's no, it's no offense to white folks or that, but some white folks like to believe that they know what it's like to be black but you can't because like my black skin never comes off it's here all the time you know what I mean and unless you wear that skin you don't know really what that means so the individual on the parole board have no idea what black is in prison and in 30 years of being here this is my first time ever having an actual black P.O. He's biracial, but, you know, as black folk, you got black and you, we say you black, right? And think about that for a second. I've been here 30 years. I've had countless parole officers. It's the first time I've having a black parole officer. I've been on the parole board five or four different times. I've never, ever been on with a black person. And there's a minimum of three people. If you include the person who's taking the notes, Four. None of them I've ever seen that look like me. So now that I'm going up for this parole hearing, it's stress, you know what I mean? like I said, I'm not trying to hear no again. what i mean? I'm fitty right now. I got three grandsons. I got two kids that I never seen on the outside. Well, one month, my son, my daughter, I never seen her on the outside. I don't know what that's like. And... To go in front of a parole board and try to explain to these people like, hey, it's 30 years. They don't see the number. They don't. And like, when you say, listen, I got a whole life outside waiting for me. They don't see that either. They're like, well, you weren't following all the rules in jail. You weren't perfect. So because your behavior wasn't perfect, we can't release you. And... They like to say, oh, you're still a threat, and this, that, the other, and the third. How am I a threat to a society I don't even know about? Like, who am I a threat to? I don't even know what the world is like right now. When I came to jail, there was no internet. There was no no smartphone. Like, how am I a threat?
5: It would be great for this parole hearing to be successful. Um... How can listeners participate? How can people support you? What what are ways of following your case and, and getting involved if people want to um, in the run up to this next parole hearing?
6: Well, at present moment, I got um, I have friends that have set up a website for me, freefarrier.ca. Right, so you can go on there and and just try to start to bring awareness to this. And we've set up up a fund in order to try to gain funds in order so I can get a lawyer, a real lawyer, at this next parole hearing. Like I said, my family don't come from money. And I've already tried those court-appointed lawyers at parole, at my trial. And that's not successful. So they've set up a fund in order to try to get donations. So we're able to get a real lawyer to try to help get me out of here. So, you know what I mean? People can go to my website, like I said, freefarrier.ca, and they can hear some of my interviews and hear what goes on in places like this. Because I think most people believe that it's Canada, it's nice and good, and it's all this, that, the other, and the third. Let me tell you, Canada's as racist as the United States. The only difference is Canada hides it well. You know what I mean? Because it's Polite Canada. Ah. Polite Canada is just as bad as down there in the USA. The only disadvantage is, like, in America, you got all kind of advocacy groups that are that advocate for prisoners and stuff like that and try to help. And they're minimum here in Canada. And the groups that are here are geared for white folks. I mean, they, they ain't geared for black folks. Black Lives Matter in Canada, that Black Lives Matter outside. Black life don't matter to the black brothers that are inside, or the sisters that are inside. You know what I mean? I've reached out to Black Life Matters and asked for their assistance. I haven't heard nothing back from them, and that's all good. But any listener that you have out there listening, want to bring light to my situation, I welcome that. Because, like I said, thirty years of prison is way beyond, way beyond what's necessary. And I'll be the first to tell you. Had I been here acting out violently and doing things that were still harmful to individuals, I wouldn't even be bringing my plight forward. I'm not that person. You know what I mean? I took the life of a man, which was wrong. I'm even going to try to act like there's justification for that. 18 years of age, and here still paying for that.
5: I hear you, man. I hear you, Renford. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your case and your life experience and your history
6: and like i said anybody that wants to talk to me interview me i'm open it ain't it ain't just about me there's other brothers that are the same thing you know what i mean it's just that i've been able to have people out there that recognize enough is enough and start to try to help me but i'm not the only one but i welcome anybody like yourself for reaching out i thank you you have no idea how much I thank you for this. 100%. I hope there are other people that come on board wanting to hear about it. Right? Because first of all, mass prison anywhere is not necessary, and the mass prison that's happening is mass prison of black. And I mean, in America, they say prisoner is the new slave, the new slave plantation. People don't really understand that what that really means. That's so true. So please, anybody want to reach out to me, talk to me, find out more about my my case, I'm an open book. I got nothing to hide.
0: Thanks to Renford Ferrier for sharing his story, to Perilous for their headlines, and to everyone who helped with the show. We'll have a link to our shows on being deaf and disabled in prison on our website. You can find out more about Renford's case, hear other interviews he's given, and learn how to support him at freefarrier.ca. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash kite line radio any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org after a brief hiatus we're happy to report that our prisoner call in phone line is back folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.